Welcome to Play USA. Thanks to Education USA, your official source on US higher education, providing programs and resources to help you get to a US college. Search online for Education USA Australia. Welcome to another episode of Play USA, our last edition of the year, all thanks to Education USA Australia. In this podcast, we have a big menu. We're really focusing on the community college pathway. This is a pathway that I went down myself. A community college degree, an associate's degree, is the first two years of a four-year degree, and you can really use that as a stepping stone to transfer to your last two years uh, at a four-year school to finish that four-year degree. Uh, We catch up with Charlie Brady. He's from Melbourne. He's in his sophomore year at Jones County Junior College. Uh, That's a school that uh, I played uh, when I was at uh, at college. It's two hours south of where I'm currently based. Uh, We also catch up with Coach uh, Dash Connell. He's the head men and women's coach at Tyler Junior College. So Tyler is a top five staple program and has been for the last five to 10 years. So Coach Dash Connell is doing an amazing job with both the men and women's programs. We also catch up with uh, Troy Weston. So he's a U.S. consular officer at the U.S. consulate in Melbourne. So we're going to kind of take a 180 degree turn. I mean, there's so many aspects of everything to know about uh, U.S. college. And the F1 student visa is something in particular that can be a little bit complicated. I certainly didn't really know the ins and outs of the the student visa. I'm sure many uh, students who want to come to college uh, can find some sort of difficulty. So we really speak about uh, getting the F1 student visa and also the pathways beyond the F1 student visa after you graduate uh, at a school over in the US. What can you do uh, with a degree? What kind of uh, other visas are available uh, to you? So we have a jam-packed episode. We're going to start our first chat with Charlie Brady. He's in his sophomore year at Jones County Junior College chose junior college because I thought it'd be a good step before going, being thrown straight into D1 or D2 and get used to the college lifestyle instead of just going straight and see my luck and then move on after two years. When you got to Jones for the first time, what do you sort of make out of the whole environment, campus, the, the tennis practice or your training sessions? Uh, when I first got here, it was actually a lot bigger than I thought because obviously it was a junior college. I thought it was going to be something a lot smaller than D1 or D2, but it's actually really big and the training's really serious. We have a good coach. We we came top 10 in the country uh, this year, so he takes it pretty serious. So it's a really good atmosphere. I played at a school that you played during the season, uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College, which is probably an hour and a half south of where you are. And at the time when I was there, we were only allowed two international players. So my brother and myself were our one and two. And then the rest of the team were from the state of Mississippi. Is that similar to how it was when I was playing or have they expanded upon that rule to bring more out of state or more international players uh, on the team? It was two internationals and the rest had to be from Mississippi, but they did change the rule this semester. So now we're at three. So there's me and two other guys from South America in our team. And then the rest are from Mississippi. I mean, how is that like the whole international slash domestic, when I say domestic, local players? How does that whole dynamic work out? And I'm sure the domestic players, I think one of the guys on your team, Alex, is training uh, where I'm teaching at. So I know that your coach, Brooks Buffington, does recruit a lot of players from the Jackson sort of Madison area and brings them to Jones. So what's that whole dynamic like? Yeah, it's still really good standard because we've got a few uh, high up from Mississippi boys that are like top sort of category in Mississippi. So we sort of train, like we still train all together, like the three internationals train with the Mississippi kids. But it's good. It's a good culture seeing like for them as well. It gets some internationals to train with. Entering your sophomore year, what does the schedule look like in terms of class schedule, practice schedule? I'm sure you do some strength training as well. But how is it all sort of integrated in on a day to day? Classes start from eight fifteen a.m. and they normally go for eighty minute periods to about lunchtime. So we have two to three 
classes each day. And then we go to the cafeteria and eat lunch. And then we train for two hours in the afternoon with the coach. And then we normally stay back and hit as a team. And then we also have strength and conditioning two to three times a week, as well as morning workouts twice a week as well. So it's pretty fun, even though it's a junior college as well. Talking off air, you're saying that the standard, the level of players are so high, very similar to what you may see at a Division One school or Division Two school or even at an NAIA school. You've just um, had the ITA fall tournament. Just give us a glimpse of that whole tournament space and that environment uh, where you guys played that a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was actually a very high standard tournament because obviously the internationals, the three internationals at each school are all at a very high level scenes because a lot of them like are only at junior college because they can't like speak good English or not as good in the classroom but that's really high standard like there was some D1 transfers there and it was a really good standard like it was strong this tournament that you played was that just like local schools or was that teams more sort of spread out from other states playing at this tournament um well the, the ITA here in Mississippi is just schools from the whole of Mississippi so it wasn't a like some RTAs do it in like different states, but our one was just people from Mississippi, teams from Mississippi. And I think people who go to a community college, you know, Mississippi has the most community colleges, I think, out of any other states that actually have college tennis. And then obviously this is something that you're going to use, but they use the community college pathway as, as a stepping stone onto a four-year school. So a four-year school is just the last two years of your bachelor's degree. So I'm sure you're looking to transfer, use your experience at Jones to transfer to a four-year school. Yeah, for sure. I, I finish up here in May next year. So I'm trying to get better as well as better in the classroom. So I can start talking to a few schools soon and get some good offers, hopefully. Since you've been at Jones, I know you started in the fall, so August of 2022 last year. But what have you really taken out of your experience playing Juco tennis that you hope to use uh, when you transfer to a four-year school? Definitely the experience and like the atmosphere because like the atmosphere is very different to like just playing by yourself in Australia, like the team spirit and just matching with the boys and hanging out with them and stuff. It's really good culture and I can definitely bring that to the school I transfer to. And I think one thing that many parents and even myself didn't know before going to college for the first time. But if you're, if you go to a community college and you're an international student, you're likely to play in the top three, right? And I'm, I'm not sure what number you're playing at the moment, but if you're playing high up in the team, then your scholarship is going to be a lot higher. So your whole financial package will be higher. And then you're also going to be playing top players from other schools. So if you're playing one, two or three, then you're going to be playing one, two or three from another school as well versus if you played at a division one or a division two school NAIA and you're playing five, six, seven or eight, and you're fighting for a spot, then you're going to play their number six on another team. So do you feel like you're sort of in the spotlight a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely good in that sense because obviously we're only allowed three internationals. So playing one, two or three is good because you're always in the lineup and you're always playing against, as you said, someone one, two or three from a different Juco and they're all so international. So even though the teams are weaker than a D1 or D2, like you're still getting a good match every single time because you're playing someone that's international. And obviously the school that recruited the international was at a good standard as well. So the standard, every match I play is going to be good, really good. And the way that the college system works here in, in the US, it's a bit different to that in Australia, right? Because every degree here is four years. It doesn't matter what you do every bachelor's degree is four years so with you doing the first two years at a community college i'm sure you've got you're paying a lot less than what you would if you were to go to a division one school off the bat yeah for sure it's, that was one of the main reasons why i came here to start with is just it's a little bit cheaper and it's still the same atmosphere and you still you still get a two-year degree a associate's degree i think it's called so when you transfer you still got that or if you decide not to transfer, you've still got a two-year degree behind you to go back home. And I mean, if you're going to do your uni studies back home in Melbourne or anywhere in Australia, you've got a hex to pay at the end of your study. So basically, you're paying 
virtually nothing. The scholarships, obviously, they're different based on which school you go to, but many community colleges pay your room, uh, room and board, and then your meal plan and academics as well. So coming out of Jones, when you transfer half of your bachelor's degree, basically at a minimal cost. So it, it seems like, you know, for some people, it's just definitely a no-brainer uh, to take in terms of the cost and reward, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't regret it all starting here at a junior college because like gets you used to what's happening pretty much. It's pretty much nearly free for like, you know, all the uniforms, room, board, as you said, schooling, make a lot of friends and stuff. So it's not, it's not a bad app, not a bad option at all. And I know one of the highlights is, is certainly for me and, and many others who, have, uh, who play college tennis is the national tournament uh, at the end of the year. So when, when I played, that was held at Collin Community College in Texas. That was in Plano, just north of Dallas. Was that where you played the NJCAA national tournament or is it at a different host site? Just give us a glimpse of what panned out uh, at that national tournament in uh, in May of this year. Yeah, so we actually did play in Texas as well, near that Collin um, campus, but it wasn't actually at that school. It was about... 10 minutes away at a big, a big complex. But yeah, that, that was some serious tennis there. Cause it was pretty much, you played, you played in your bracket. So I was number three in our team. So I played against all the threes in the country and that was all really high standard tennis. Like it's probably the biggest tournament I've played in my life, to be honest. Like the standard was really high. Schools coming out of Oklahoma, Texas, California, they don't, they're not bound to the same rules as what they are in Mississippi. So that they, they can have unlimited amount of international or out of state players. So that means that, you know, you're really playing the, the best number one, twos and threes in the country. Many of these players are transferring to big SEC or big 10, big 12 programs. Yeah, for sure. Like I know some of the guys are were playing in singles and doubles. They've signed at big schools like top 10, top 20 schools, D1, D2. So like it's a really high standard. Um, You won't get any bad matches there. So I, I tried to get as much experience as I could from that tournament. So Charlie, what do you say to an 18-year-old kid who's looking to play college? Maybe they haven't met the academic requirements of playing Division One tennis. They're very good athletically. Their WTN, uh, as we're now using, is is still high at a, you know, at a D1 standard, but they're kind of on the fence about going to college because they don't want to go to a community college. They just want to go to, to a division one school. Yeah. I would for sure give it a go because it's a really good stepping stone. You get used to college and if you don't, if you don't like it, then you don't like it, but I'm, I know for a hundred percent you will. It's cheap board, good rooms, um, get to hang out with your teammates, good schooling, um, similar setup, good canvases, and really good training, and you'll get used to you'll get used to going before you can transfer up to a D one or D two school. Well, uh, Charlie, we wish you all the best here at the first serve for your final sophomore year. Um, of course, you're going to transfer on to the next school, so we'll be following your journey. Hopefully, we can get uh, some highlights. I'm not sure how much we can actually see on the play site, but uh, all the best, and hope to catch up with you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great catching up with Charlie. He's been on our college segment earlier in the year. It's, it's really good to get an insight of the standard of community college tennis that Charlie uh, is playing. Of course, there is a little bit of a stigma around community college tennis and the level that it may bring and sort of comparing that to Division One, Division Two, and NAIA as well. But we're going to catch up with Dash Connell next, the head men and women's coach at Tyler Junior College. And, and one thing that he really talks about is you know, backing up what Charlie was saying about the level of play at community college tennis, two of his players uh, did receive a wild card into a challenger tournament, uh, which was at Tyler Junior College. So usually you would see that from a Division One uh, player. Obviously, the standard is so high still at a community college. Uh, Violet Pisa went down uh, the community college pathway. She played at Tyler as well. So we're going to bring you our chat with Coach Dash Connell, head men and women's coach at Tyler Junior College. What are the benefits of starting at a junior college and what is it about a junior college compared to other colleges that sort of provides 
those sort of benefits to certain select number of students? Yeah. So there's a couple of different reasons, a couple of different kinds of athletes or students that we get here in junior college. Uh, number one is people who aren't academically ready uh, for four-year school. So uh, about a quarter of the players that we get here in Tyler um, are kids that didn't do their high school core classes correctly um, or just didn't graduate correctly. So they take their GED. They take their GED. They wouldn't be NCAA eligible yet. And if they go to junior college and graduate, they become academically eligible in the NCAA. So it's a nice stepping stone. Um, there's also the path uh, for a player. Uh, this was me when I was in junior college, when I was in juniors going into junior college, I needed to get better at tennis and it gave me some extra time an extra two years. Um, I had the wor- one of the worst forehands ever known to man. And so I had to get that better and um, worked on that for a couple of years and then um, was able to move on to a four year school that way. It also gave me a lot of confidence academically. I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't, I didn't work hard. I guess I'll put it that way. Um, it gave me a chance to get a good foundation underneath me before going on to my four-year school um, of, of how I was going to study. Because especially for boys, they mature academically at a later time. I know for myself, I was 21, 22 when I started to be like, I, I actually like academics. If it wasn't for me going to a community college, I went to Mississippi Gulf Coast. and We obviously played you guys at, at nationals, but uh, I, I didn't actually start enjoying the academic process until I was a lot older. So I think that's another, as you were mentioning, uh, Dash, definitely one of the the benefits. Now, coming from an Australian mm-hmm. high school, we have a thing called, uh, depending on what state you come from, it could be the Victorian Certificate of Education, the South Australian Certificate of Education. There's different states, so each state has a different uh, high school certification. Is there also a standardized test that community colleges want to look at, like an ACT or an SAT? Yeah, I mean, those tests will help. Um, what, what they really help with is actually placement of where to start you in school at a junior college, especially for an international student. Um, there's another test that we ask for called the TSI. Um, it, it, and you can do that at home. So it's really convenient. You can do it at home. There's a, a proctor that can watch you uh, on your laptop, take the test. And um, it's not a fail or pass, just like the SAT. It's more of a placement test. And so any of those work. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we kind of figured out it depends on the player or the student and where they're coming from. So what are the first steps for a player to go to, to college? So if they reach out to you and, you, and you're, you're interested, what, what happens after that? First, first thing for me is introduction. Uh, I, I, I love talking like, like on camera, talking to someone's face, even if they're halfway around the world. I want to talk to them, introduce myself, introduce the program that we have. That would be the first step for any any player looking to go to America and play is, is to meet the person that they're going to be um, be coached by and and what the what the place looks like. Ask the coach to show you around with technology these days. Every time I do a face call, I walk around with my phone and show them our facility and show them our campus. And it's not just like being in person, but it's close. Sometimes you actually get an idea of what it looks like. That's step one. And, and then from after that. To me, that's when you start having uh, the messaging, a little more of the dialogue of, hey, coach, this is how I've been doing my tournaments the last couple of weeks. This is what I'm working on. Um, this is my family's going here for vacation. I'm excited. Just any you can try to meet each other. Um, I'm really big on not just tennis. I mean, obviously, this is tennis and this is school, but we're both people. I'm not just a coach. I'm a person. You're not just a player. You're a person. And we need to get to know each other. I think it helps the relationship. And so you try to develop that. And then sometime, I mean, usually the coach kind of gives a timeline, but sometime you'll start making some decisions of, is this the place I want to be? What are some of the biggest questions, some of the biggest stigmas that you sort of try to debunk if a, if an athlete is sort of on the fence and they're like, oh, it's a community college, you know, I'm not really sure my friends, my family and peers are like, do you really want to go to a community college? I know that that's a big stigma here in the, in the US, but also, you know, all around a little bit. This is a question I have all the time. My friend doesn't think junior college is the good level. And I kick back real hard. I mean, I, I usually tell my own story first. I went, I went to TJC. I had one or two small school offers, went to TJC, and then I got to go play at Texas A&M. We were top 10 in the nation. That was a big that was a, that's a cool story. Not because I did it, just because it's, it happened at junior college. And it happens all the time. Um, I know that in my program, it's happened 
you go to a, a good power five school, there's been about, we've got about 12 to 15 kids going the last decade. So average one or two a year. Um, and then if it's not just the power five, it's also the good four-year schools. And, and, and because if you get all these players that go to junior college um, and they're going to one day go to a school like that, your competition's better than you think it is. Um, I know that, that the biggest fear is, well, what if I'm one of two good players and it's not a good practice? That's something you got to do some research on on your own. Um, but just like, uh, to me, one NCAA school is not like the other. It's the same thing in junior college. You can't just blanket the whole thing um, and think that just because there's a school in some other part of the country doesn't mean this school over here in the southern part of the country is the same. Or, you know, there's just a lot of differences. So you got to do your homework. And um, obviously, I'm biased. I think junior college is a great route. But uh, I know it's not for everybody. But I know it's for some people, and the people who have done it here recently seem to have loved it, and then it's a good route. Well, there's five divisions of U.S. college tennis, over 4,000 universities. So, And speaking to Violet Apazot, who was on our last episode of Play USA, I mean, she was runner-up in, in doubles in uh, Shane Open Juniors and Wimbledon Juniors, and here she is going to a community college and then going NAIA, and it suited her. It, it's And it's really about choosing the right school and going down the right pathway to make you the best athlete that you can be rather than just going to somewhere just, just for the name of it. Exactly. Right. I mean, there's, there's, I understand the, the, the stigma of sometimes of hearing junior college compared to division one there, there's, I understand that I'm, I'm not uh, oblivious to that sound, but at the same time, like you said, I mean, Violet had a ton of chances. She ended up coming here and playing number three for us. And this girl was lights out. She played number three for us. And I think what it did for her is it built up her confidence a little bit again because she'd been away from the game for a bit. Um, and it gave her opportunity to see tennis differently. And so, I mean, like you said, doing doing your homework, making sure you it's not just the junior college name, it's the coach. It's the academics in that, is this the right academics for you? I needed that. I needed some confidence boosting. I needed a good foundation. Um, so I know others do too. And it, is that for you? If it's not for you, Look at Division One. Go do that and knock it out of the park. If it's not, look at junior college. It, it's such a good opportunity. Well, it also gives you the chance to be a leader as well. And and some schools where I played in Mississippi at the time, you could only have two out of state or two international players. Now they've increased it to three players. I know at Tyler and other schools like Cowley, you can have six to eight international players. But especially if you're going to a school where you can't get uh, six internationals on a team and, and you're an Australian looking to play college tennis, you can really have that opportunity to be a leader. You're also going to be playing against other number one and twos and threes at other schools as well. Yeah. And there's nothing harder. <laughs> there's nothing. I mean, no matter what you say, if you're playing a team's best player, every time you play a match, that person's good. I mean, they, they're beating everybody else and they have confidence and that is a tough task every time. So I think it makes you tough for mentally. And, and like you said, if you play number one or two at any school, you're going to get attention and people will, people will read your emails um, and pay attention to you. So the whole tennis language in Australia has sort of transformed into UTR. Obviously we've scrapped our whole uh, Australian ranking system and it's just, everything's UTR. I think with the ITF WTN number coming in, that's going to have some impact as well. So a lot of parents, a lot of juniors and coaches uh, asking, okay, I, I coach a player and their UTRs, for example, they're an eight or a nine. What UTR are you looking for to, to come into to your program? For our program, it's somewhere between a 10 and a 12 for a guy on the guy side and seven to nine on the girl side. But I mean, we know how it's like rankings aren't new. I mean, I know UTR is more, uh, has more math to it, has the formulas and it's, um, it's, but we all know it's not foolproof because we know that one person that you're like, there's no way they're an eight for sure. They're an 11, you know, it, it just happens. And so when I say those numbers, it's more of like a, a way to, to narrow down some recruiting. Cause I can't see everybody in the world, you know? So you have to kind of like narrow it down a little bit, but just because you're a, like we have a guy on our team right now, it says that he's a 9.5 UTR. I think it is the guy just got seventh in the nation in the fall national. Not that's not, that's inaccurate. He's not a nine point five. So UTR is not always this perfect formula. I try to have my players because they're being recruited to leave junior college. They're worried about their UTR sometime, and I get it. 
At the same time, I say you you there's a lot of ways to sell yourself, and a number is not, it's one of like ten. And so, yes, that that is important. Is it the most important? No. And so, you have to be able to look at everything. So, looking at a day by day schedule in in the fall, what does an athletic day look like? And just speaking to some of the Division One uh, players, they've they've got access to nutritionists and the sports psychologists and all these athletic departments that sort of help them be the best that, that they can be. But what what do you, what does it look like at a community college standpoint? Yeah, so I mean, just like I said, it's, there's all of them look a little different. I think we're pretty privileged here, um, not because I, I do anything. I'm just lucky to be at a place that has some some benefits to it. Uh, a typical day is you have classes either in the morning or in the afternoon. Like for instance, we do our pra- our men's practice in the morning. And they have classes in the afternoon. Our girls have class in the morning and practice in the afternoon, um, and that's about two and a half hours long for each for each group. Uh, and then we we're lucky to have a, a strength and conditioning coach that helps out each one of our teams after practice. Do about forty five minutes or so after, whether it's in the gym or footwork or conditioning. And then we have study hall at night and we always take care of our studies at night. Um, the little things I think we have that uh, I think is rare for junior college. We have uh, our training room is pretty phenomenal. We have three certified trainers and we have student trainers, about 20 student trainers that are always helping. Tennis is a rough sport. You just get nicks. You, you just get hit up all the time, your elbow, your wrist, your ankle. Um, and to have someone there just to be there and not a tennis coach wrapping your ankle it's huge um that's big and then having all the facilities on campus i think that's a big deal that you don't always see in junior college um we live on campus our our tennis facilities on campus our foods on campus everything's here um and so i think you see a lot of that but what i i love the stories um of the guys and girls who are at any junior college because they get then they end up going to a four-year school and they they have all the things you listed. You know, they have a nutritionist. They, I mean, they can go to the smoothie bar and get a smoothie whenever they want. You know, all these special things. And when you get a junior college kid, I get here from four-year co- coaches all the time. They feel much more um, like they've been given so much. They're appreciative to what they're getting there um, because they're at it. They've been at a junior college, or maybe they didn't have all those things, but they they learned how to love tennis. They learned how to love academics and which is the most important things, right? Not smoothies, but smoothies are nice. And so they end up appreciating that. So um, those are some of the, the cooler stories I get to hear. You're obviously in the fall at the moment. Is Are you playing a lot more sort of ITA tournaments? And are there any individual tournaments that you encourage players to play, such as ITF tournaments or WTN tournaments? Yeah, so... Yeah, there is two different seasons, just like NCAA, where it's more of an individual in the fall and team in the spring. But yeah, we have been playing individual tournaments. We just finished our our fall national. And after the fall national ends, we kind of die down a little bit as far as competition. Um, We do have, there is one UTR tournament that's hosted here in Tyler. Tyler hosts an 80K actually on the women's side. And two of our girls will get a wild card into that doubles match or doubles draw. Um, so there's little opportunities like that, but we do encourage them. Um, hey, look for look for tournaments, look for things to play. Um, just because the team's not traveling doesn't mean you have to sit at home on the weekend. We're lucky in the state of Texas. There's a lot of tournaments. It's not cold yet. You know, we're still warm enough in October where it's not cold enough to um, have to run away from the tennis court. In terms of like scrimmage matches, practice matches, would you play against other schools in different divisions as well? Yeah, we we actually majority of our Division One matches work this way. I know most junior colleges do this, but it's a way for a Division One school to keep all the important rankings we were just talking about, the UTR and all that. If they happen to lose to a junior college player, it doesn't help them, right? But at the same time, they want to play us. They want to play our schools. So there's there's about on average in the springtime six or seven schools that will go play that are Division One. Uh, division two and play against them as, as an exhibition. And what it does is it allows us to play tennis, which is what you want. I mean, I, we don't, my goal at the beginning of the year isn't to go beat a division one is to win at the end of the year. And so, but to get there, you have to have some tough competition. And so, um, yeah, we do always fit in those exhibitions uh, in the springtime. So when you're recruiting a player out of the country, out of the U S let's just say you're recruiting an Australian player 
Uh, what are you looking for, not just from an athletic standpoint or an academic standpoint, but from a just a general characteristic standpoint? Yeah, I, this sounds funny, but you talked about the junior college thing. I want to know how interested they are. Like if they if they get over the hurdle of like this is a junior college, like they they kind of smirk at that. And you can kind of tell like they're not interested. I'm not interested. It was not until I need them to show like, hey, I I want to do this. This is I want this career path. Then obviously I'll I'll, I'll bite on that, and I love hearing about that. I also the, I look a lot at um, their foundation uh, as a whole. You can kind of tell. I, I look at you look at social media. You look at their family that's around. If they don't, if they're unfortunate, they don't have as much family around. Um, who they're hanging out with? Who are their mentors? I talk to those people as much as I can. I mean, ideally, moms and dads, I, I I reach out to them and say, "Hey, will you talk to me?" Because I want to I want to see where they're coming from. I want to see uh, where this player is coming from. And usually, you get someone from a a family or a group of friends or core unit that's helping take care of them in the right way. When they get here, it, there's even if when there's a your rubber is going to meet the road at some point. It's going to be tough, and they already have that foundation. It's easy to to lean on that. And if there's potential interest uh, from a prospective student to contact uh, yourself and they're interested in playing at Tyler, or what's the best way to get in contact with you or uh, your assistant coach? Yeah. So my art, if you go to our website, it has my email on there. My, my, I have two assistant coaches. Their email is on there too. Uh, mine's easy. It's just the letters J-C-O-N at T-J-C.edu. Um, but I, I, so we, Obviously, I'm on both sides of the fence here, right? So I get, I'm recruiting, but I'm also having players be recruited. So I suggest to them email the coach, but also it's not creepy these days. If you find them on social media, follow them, like them, and shoot them a small message. Go, hey, just sent you an email, just letting you know. If you want to talk, let me know. And so it kind of lets the way people function. We will see that social media sometimes before the email, or pay more attention to an email uh, because of that. So. I also to anybody in Australia that's looking to contact us, don't just email. It's a bad habit of mine. I'll see it and go, I'll respond to that later because I'm doing something right now. But if I'm on if I'm on the road and I see a text message or I see a message on social media, it's just a quicker quicker response is, is easier. Some great insights there from Coach Dash Connell, the head men and women's coach at Tyler Junior College, really speaking about the benefits of the community college pathway and how going to a junior college can really propel you onto the next level, all from the likes of the UTR system and really how the standard is improving to new heights each year. Of course, as you were saying, two of his players did get wild cards into a challenger tournament. On to our next guest, uh, Troy Wesson. He's a U.S. consular officer at the U.S. consulate in Melbourne. We really talk about the process of getting and applying for the F1 student visa before going to college. Many students coming out of high school wanting to go to the U.S. to buy on a tennis scholarship. Obviously, there's a series of steps to get over to the U.S. visas. I know that can be challenging. So what are the first steps in applying for that uh, F1 student visa? I love the starting point of that question. And, and sort of the reason I do is because I want everyone to know that a visa is necessary. So a lot of particularly Australians have traveled to the United States throughout their lives, and they've been able to do so without a visa because we enjoy a relationship with Australia where if you um, if you meet a certain criteria, you can travel to the United States without a visa. But students absolutely need one. And there are a couple of types that would be applicable to students. The first one is an F1, uh, an F1 visa, and that's for any student that's enrolling in a high school or university program. And the, the catch with that is that in order to qualify for an F1, the culmination of the program has to be either with a diploma like in high school or a degree like a university. Um, so when you start down that road, the first thing you're going to want to do is to look at the Student Exchange Visitor Program website to figure out which schools are qualified to accept international students. So you kind of got to start there. You got to find the school first. And once you do that, you'll sign up through the SEVIS program. And once you're admitted, once you're admitted to the school and once you've 
entered the SEVIS program, then you're going to be looking at getting the visa. So again, generally, it's going to be an F-1 visa for students, although there's also a J visa that's um, available to folks that are part of exchange programs. I know most student athletes are generally studying for the entire academic year and not in a finite exchange program. But just to throw it out there, there is a J visa that exists for folks that are there in exchange programs. But with F visas, um, what you'll need to do is you'll 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 go to ustraveldocs.com, which is where our um, which is the website that is the repository for all information about the visa process. And you'll apply for an F1 visa. Once you've applied, um, you'll be able to schedule an appointment. Here in Australia, we have three consulates in the country. We have one in Melbourne, which is where I'm at. We have one in Sydney, and then we have one in Perth. And students can interview really at any of those locations and the student interview is the point when they would come in contact with me and that's when they would when the decision would be made whether or not they're eligible for a student visa and I can talk more about that in a few minutes but that's sort of their starting process start with the school then move into to SEVIS and then you move into seeking the visa applying for the visa. During my time at college I went to a community college which was of course two years and then transferred to a four-year university but within that my first F1 visa was only two years because it coincided with my first two years of academic study now if I was to go to a four-year school let's just say a division one or a division two school right off the bat would that F1 student visa be for four years or is that something that needs to be renewed in two-year increments no it it doesn't so uh... Again, it depends on your program, as you've pointed out, but in general for Australians, and it varies, and I want to, I do want to be clear because I'm sure your audience is going to be a little bit broader than just Australian citizens. It's going to depend on, um, and you can go to travel.state.gov to see this, but the length of a visa is generally tied to a particular reciprocity period for different countries. So when I talk today, I'm going to be really focusing on Australia. But in general, student visas, F1 visas, are good for 60 months. Now, those can be changed and tailored depending on the length of the academic program. But in general, if you have a four-year program, you are likely to be looking at F1 that is going to last for the majority, if not the totality of the program. Now, when you are at college, I'm sure there are some sort of restrictions of what you can and cannot do. I I know a lot of students want to work um, and get some sort of payment or, or money just to sort of support themselves while they're at college. I know it's sometimes it's hard for students to uh, rely on family, but what are those restrictions? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question. So let me first kind of pop back and, and pick up something that you mentioned, which was that you started a community college, which I see all the time. It's a it's a terrific way for students to sort of get their feet wet with the U.S. education system. And so when you when you finish up a program, if you are looking to transfer or if you're looking to start a new program, then one thing that you need to keep in mind is that there's a thing called uh, that at least I've dubbed the five month rule. And this is one of the first restrictions that I want to talk about. If you're transferring to a new program, which means that there'll be a new I-20, which is one of the documents that I'm sure we'll get into talking about in a few minutes. But if you're transferring into a new program in order to stay in the United States during that time, the new program has to start within five months of the culmination of the prior program. So that's one restriction that students should be aware of. Now, that's not a, that's not applicable to you until you've actually been in the United States, but it's it's the first place that I'll start. Um, in terms of working, it's important to, for students to realize that their, their number one job while they're in the United States on a student visa is to be a student. It's an academic pursuit. And so there are, there are absolute restrictions on what you can do and where you can work. Specifically for an F-1 visa, at least during the first year of the program, um, students are not permitted to work off campus. Um, after that first year, the world opens up a little bit more. But again, any any off-campus employment that a student undertakes has to be related to their field of study. So one thing that we talk about often is optional practical training, which can happen during the student's program, or it can be after, you know, it's, it's potentially something that happens after the program. And those are training programs and, and often work programs that are going to be directly related to what the student is studying in the United States. So if that's chemistry, it might be working in a lab, something like 
that. Um, now, to your point earlier about, look, there are economic realities to being a student. Not everyone has that support built in. Um, and sometimes circumstances, sometimes you do and circumstances change. So in those cases, there, in order for a student to accept off-campus employment that's not directly related to their program, they would need a, they would need authorization to do so from the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and they would need to show a changed, um, a, a significant, um, a significant economic handicap in order to qualify to have that employment. Uh, one thing that I'll always sort of go back to, because keep in mind, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy that's considering the visa. So by the time they're having whatever that is occur in their life, it's been many months, if not years, since they've seen me. So one thing that I'll say is that students should always talk to their designated school official, um, which is the person that's going to be filling out I-20s. They're going to have a relationship with this person often. That person is housed within a special office within the university, depending on its size. And if they have questions about employment along the way, that's where they can direct any questions like that. And then I guess the last the last restriction that I'll bring up is, and I think this probably goes without saying, but I'll say it nonetheless, you have to remain enrolled in the program. So a student visa isn't licensed to go to the United States, leave school, and then remain in the United States. You have to remain in the program, and you have to follow all the laws of the United States, including whatever locality you happen to be in. Those are the major, I don't know, restrictions is the right word, but those are, those are, those are what you can expect um, when you're issued a student visa. So when you're in the service program, the university has issued you that I-20. What are the next steps that you as a, uh, as a potential student need to do to get that visa? Yeah, so back to U.S. Travel Docs, um, that's where you'll go. And it really is a step-by-step-by-step process in terms of applying for a student visa. And one thing I do want to mention to students right now is that we're we're in a unique time where we have an interview waiver program that is available to a lot of students. Uh, that's something that probably, Lachlan, when you were studying in the United States was not a possibility, but because of some of the realities of the last couple of years, we've, we've introduced an interview waiver program. So when the student gets their SEVIS paid, they've been accepted to the university that they're going to be attending, and they go to ustraveldocs.com. Once they're working their way through the system, at some point before they schedule an interview, they're going to have a little pop-up that tells them about the interview waiver program. And what that means is that if you have traveled to the United, if you're if you're an Australian citizen and you have traveled to the United States previously, be that with a tourist visa, be that through the visa waiver program. If you've traveled to the United States previously, then there's the possibility that you can apply for that visa without ever stepping foot in a consulate to have an interview. And that is, I, I, I want students to know. I know there are a lot of nerves around the interview, and I hope that we can dispel some of that today. But there is the possibility that you can bypass that person-to-person interview altogether. And in those cases, you would be submitting documents and someone in the consulate would be making a determination about your visa without ever having to interview you. Again, there are restrictions to that in terms of who can qualify, uh, but that when you're on ustraveldocs.com, that's going to be set out for you if, if you apply for that. But let's say you don't. Let's say that for what you've never been to the United States or for whatever reason you don't qualify for the interview waiver program, once you schedule your appointment through that website, you will um, you will get some pre- uh, preparatory um, messaging from the consulate about what to bring and when to show up. The next step after you've applied for a visa is the interview. And the interview is going to require that you appear personally at one of our consulates in Australia. If you are applying somewhere else in another country, then you'll have to apply to an embassy or one of the consulates. And that's the time when you come in and you talk to a visa officer like myself about what your plan is in the United States. That's when you tell the officer how you qualify for this program, why you're interested in this program, what your plan is in the United States. And after the visa is let's fingers crossed say issued um, at that point that's when you would plan your travel to the united states and there's a lot of minutia that goes into that but that's sort of the overview of of where you go and where you start 
one thing I want to talk about also is um, as as we're thinking as students think about and get ready for their interview. I know that I've heard folks say that they're a little nervous sometimes, and and I want to just sort of stop that right there and say that it's not a it's not a process that's meant to be nerve wracking. And it's not something, you know, when I conduct interviews, it's not some, it's not something that I want anyone to bring any anxiety to the window because that doesn't help anybody. And we don't want you to feel that way. So when you're thinking about your interview, just think that the visa officer wants to know that you have a plan in the United States. Number one, your first job is as a student, what are you going to study? How did you choose a university like this out of all out of the 4000 universities in the United States? Why this one? And then also we want to know that you've thought about a plan for how you're going to take care of yourself in the United States, because the last thing anyone wants to do is land and say, oh, I hadn't thought about how I'm going to buy dinner tonight or something like that. And generally students have thought that through, but that's sort of what the visa interview is about. It's making sure that you've thought this plan to its logical end. You know why you're going to the United States and, and we're here to listen to that plan. So please don't bring um, any students that are listening. Please don't bring anxiety to the interview. It's not meant to be that way. We are fast. It's a fast, we want you to be prepared when you come in to see us, but it's not meant to be anxiety inducing. So when you apply for an appointment, what is usually the turnaround time? Let's just say that the visa does get granted. Because I mean, a lot of students don't actually commit to a college a couple of weeks prior. They, they don't give it a lot of time. That's just the way it is for in some, in some cases. So what's that sort of turnaround time for that visa? Yeah, plan early is, is what I'll say. So we have done, and, and this is speaking across the world. I, I mean, in the wake of COVID, we have visa officers have just done incredible work making sure that we're able to service the folks that need that, that need and want visas to travel to the United States. And near the top of the priority list is always students. We want more students in the United States. We want to make sure that we're facilitating that travel. That being said, it is not instantaneous. And in particular, as you get closer to the beginning of semesters, that's when the time crunch starts. So there's not a particular turnaround time that's applicable to everyone for getting the visa once it's approved. It's generally pretty quick. Um, that being said, one of the requirements that the student has to show, so when you, when you come to the interview, when you come to the interview, one of the documents that you're going to have is what's called an I-20. And your I-20 is going to be issued by your designated school official. And that's going to have your program start date on it. And that's a really important start date for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that as visa officers, we can't issue visas for programs that started in the past. So that's where it falls to the student to really be realistic with your own planning, but also with your designated school official in making sure that whatever appears on your I-20 gives you what's called a realizable start date, meaning that you have time to get that visa and travel to the United States. It varies. We tell folks to please apply early. I'm already talking to folks that are making plans for the spring semester. I like that. That means that it's, you know, it's November, it's, we're, we're taping this on November 1st. That means that they've got a couple of months to plan to travel. You're limited, by the way, you can only enter the United States 30 days before the beginning of your program. So if you wanted to enter the United States before that, before 30 days, you would need a different visa in order to do so. You need a tourist visa. But what I want students to, to understand from this is that the sooner you make those plans, the better. And also having a realistic relationship with your designated school officials. So what I, what I know that a lot of students will, particularly particularly if you have a close relationship with that official, there'll be an understanding that maybe there's some flexibility to those start dates. And that at, it says the program begins on January 1st, but we know that classes don't begin until a week later. And maybe you can get away with a few days before you actually need to be present on campus. Whatever that I-20 says is what the important date is. So having that relationship with that official and making sure that whatever that whatever's reflected on that form, it gives you time to have that interview, get the visa approved, printed in your hand before you go to the United States. And obviously, it's important to stick by those start dates because, I mean, if you go to any U.S. airport and, and a DHS will send you back home. 
that that's a great point. That, that's a that's that's a, a, an excellent point that they should be aware of because you know while the Department of State is the one is where I work and they're the ones that are handling visas, ultimately the decision about whether or not you are admitted into the United States is one that lies with the Department of Homeland Security. And if you don't, if your program happened in the past, you do run the risk of spending a long time on an airplane just to spend a lot longer on an airplane going back home. So having that relationship and having, having your ducks in a row, so to speak, is, is important. Um, and pre-planning is important. I'm sure that's happened before and, it, and it's probably not fun, but um, after you finish your U.S. degree and your visa is about to expire and a student wants to stay in the U.S., be that further study if they want to do a master's program or a Ph.D. program, or even if they want to work. I know that there's different programs such as the OPT, but now can they stay in the U.S. or would they have to return back to their home country to reapply for a new visa? Again, I'll start with the five-month rule. So if your new program, so if you're going into a graduate program and that program, and so a new program is going to require a new I-20. And if that program is going to start five months or later after the end of your last program, you would have to depart the United States. That being said, if it's if, if, if it's not, if it's going to start sooner, then there, there is the, the possibility of being allowed to stay in the United States. OPT, the option practical training which you're talking about is uh, is a is a wonderful is a wonderful tool that's available to students and it provides uh, it provides practical training in whatever you studied related to whatever you studied um, either during the program or in some cases afterwards when it's afterwards it doesn't need to be reflected on your i-20 in terms of dates but what it absolutely needs to be reflected on is that there has to be an annotation on that I-20 that says OPT is a possibility. If it's not, you can't just sort of rock up and say, all right, I want to I want to do OPT today. You have to have con contemplated that ahead of time and your designated school official, I'm saying it again, designated school official has to have annotated your I-20 to permit that. Um, but again, the five rule, the five month rule is one that, that every student should keep in mind. We have a lot of Aussies who are playing uh, low-level, low-professional tournaments, ITF tournaments, where there is prize money. Obviously, they've got to, it's got to coincide with NCAA guidelines. They can't accept more than $10,000 per year in prize money. Is that still reflective of their F1 visa? Would that be breaking any sort of barriers if they were to play in pro tournaments during their tenure at college? Yeah, so... I'll, I'll, I'll again say that your designated school official is sort of your, your best source of information for, for what you can do, for what activities are permissible while you're a student. And I'm going to assume that in that question, you mean that they propose to play in this tournament while also remaining a student. So certainly if they are leaving their academic program, then that F1 status would no longer be valid to keep them in the United States. But in general, I think that it's important that students talk to their designated school official about what's permitted. There are other visas that exist. So, for instance, for individuals that are playing not at a pro level that are competing in, in athletic tournaments where the only remuneration that's possible is prize money. That So if, if, if you win, there's prize money. If you don't, there's nothing. In those cases, there are other visas like B1, B2 visas that are appropriate. But in terms of what you can do when you're already in the United States, whether or not there's an adjustment of status that's necessary, I think the best place to go is your school official because particularly with tennis, as you know, there are a lot of different types of tournaments. Their affiliations are different and what they expect from their participants is going to be different. So there's not a blanket rule that I can give right now that would apply to every situation that a student may run into. So it's more important that they have that relationship so that they can go and say, here's what I'm interested in doing. Is that permissible? And then as you brought up, there's the NCAA guidelines, which are just far beyond me, but um, certainly something that needs to be in the forefront of the minds of students. The majority of Australian athletes who do go over to the US do not turn pro. They seek further academics or they, they get a job, they go into the workforce. So after they finish with their four-year degree or their, their whole field of study and they want to work over in the US, but it's not part of that OPT program that you were mentioning, are there other sort of visa possibilities? I know that there's the E3, that, that relationship that Australia has with the United States. Uh, and there's also the company-based 
green cards, I know they're two popular options, but if you could elaborate on that, because I know we have a lot of Aussies who do want to remain in the US and continue their careers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me first say that remaining in the United States requires that you have an appropriate visa to cover your presence in the United States. And so while OPT, for instance, may allow you to stay in the United States on your previously issued visa, if you're changing status, you you need to you need to be aware of whether or not you can stay in the United States or whether or not that requires that you depart. But you are very correct that there are other categories of visas that Australians can avail themselves of. E3 visas are a good example of uh, of profession of visas that are available to professionals in specialty occupations um, in the United States, and those are made available specifically to Australian citizens. So that that particular visa type is for Australians. There are other visa types. If you are if you do turn pro in tennis, there are O and P visas that contemplate professional athletes. There are other, depending on if if you don't turn pro and you find yourself in a different field, there are other visas that generally will cover most types of work. But what those requirements are are going to vary from visa to visa. Oftentimes, they require an employer um, petitioning for you. And that's going to require, obviously, that you have a job before <laughs> before you can seek those visas. So it, it, you got to have the job before you seek the visa. It doesn't go the other way around. But there are numerous, numerous visa opportunities that would allow an Australian who's interested in working in the United States to potentially do so. But again, underscoring that staying in the United States seamlessly without returning to Australia may not be possible. Uh, it may It may require a return to Australia. You've unpacked basically everything regarding the F1 student visa, so I really appreciate that. But I'd, I'd love to ask, other than uh, student visas, you're based in Melbourne. I'm in Mississippi. I'm in your neck yeah. of the woods. You're, you're in my neck of, yeah, of yeah. the woods. But from your time in, in Melbourne, obviously being a big, the second largest city in Australia, what are the biggest cultural experiences and differences that you find different from let's just say the southern part of the United States where, where you're from and from Melbourne. Yeah, I, I think that Australians, um, folks in Melbourne are just warm and inviting and they want to know you and they want to know your story and they're interested in the United States and they're interested in people, which is largely the same experience that I had. You know, I grew up in the South, so my experience is, is that of someone who's who lived there for many, many years. But I think the United States shares that mutual interest and affinity for Australians. They're interested in knowing your story. They're interested in knowing what diversity you bring to the table and knowing how you're going to make the institution or the city better. And that's one thing that I just, I just see so many similarities between us. I mean, I guess if you're talking differences, coffee, I mean, let's be honest here. Um, Melbourneers take their coffee very seriously, and I don't think that they believe that what we call coffee in the States is actually coffee. Um, but apart from that very slight difference, I would say that it's it's very, very similar. And it's, it's, it's one where I've heard a lot of Australians who have come back from exchange programs or studying in the United States, and it's a positive, life-changing experience. It's one that's enriched them and given them a new surrogate family across the ocean. And so I think about it much more in terms of interest than I, I think about it much more in terms of similarities than I do differences. Troy, thank you so much for coming on our last episode of Play USA. This is our last episode of the year. This is something that I wish I could listen to back when I first came to the US, I had no idea about what even a visa was or what it was for. So I'm sure there's other uh, potential students who want to come over to the US who don't really know much about, you know, sort of what to do. So hopefully if they're listening to this, that this can sort of unpack and, and clarify any questions and sort of provide more information to them. So thank you so much for coming on. Of course, of course. Happy to do it. It's, it's been a pleasure. A big thank you to Troy for coming on our last edition of Play USA. He did a great job of really unpacking uh, the process of getting the F1 student visa. I'd also like to thank both Charlie Brady and Coach Dash Connell for coming on our last uh, edition of Play USA. Charlie giving his insights, being in his sophomore year at Jones County Junior College, and of course, Coach Dash Connell, the head men and women's coach at Tyler 
junior college. He's done a great job with both the men and women's program uh, over the last five to 10 years. They've been a top five school. We played them uh, in the nationals tournament when I was a student at Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. So some great insights from both Charlie and Dash Connell on community college tennis, a great stepping stone onto the next level. Uh, I'd like to wrap up by thanking Education USA Australia for partnering with us for uh, this year. And of course, all of our guests who have made this podcast possible and giving their insights into their journeys as either a athlete or a coach. On to 2024, we hope to make this podcast bigger and better. If you'd like to reach out to us with any suggestions, any queries, any requests, anything alike, you can uh, send us an email. That's the best way to get in contact with us. The first serve sen at gmail.com. Tennis is a top five sport for Australian student athletes studying at US colleges and universities. The United States college system is a great fit for students who want to play their sport at a competitive level while studying for a degree. And Education USA can help you as you explore these options. Education USA is your official source on US higher education. In Australia, there are three offices located at US consulates in Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. With over 4,000 US colleges and universities to choose from, there'll be one that meets your academic and athletic profile. Education USA provides programs and resources to help you get to a US college. Connect by searching online for Education USA Australia. That's a wrap for this episode. We look forward to seeing you back in 2024. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.